Hi, I'm Rachel Gastic, and this is Formative, the podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by the leaders of tomorrow. Our guest today is Haitian-American novelist, short story writer, and teacher, Adwish Dantika, whose formidable resume includes an MFA in creative writing from Brown University, two Story Prize awards, a MacArthur Fellows Genius Grant, the Langston Hughes Medal, and honorary degrees from Smith, Yale, and the University of the West Indies. In 1998, she came to national attention when her novel, Breath, Eyes, Memory, was selected for Oprah's Book Club. Her work often explores themes of national identity, gender, relationships, grief, loss, exile, and home. We are honored to welcome her to Formative. And now, I'd like to introduce my student co-host, Allison, a delightful young artist and student of theater, currently attending eighth grade at IS51R. How are you feeling about your big interview today, Allison? Um, nervous, excited, ready to learn. Well, I'm going to let you take the interview away. Go ahead, Allison. Um, so, hello. Hi, Allison. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. So you grew up in Brooklyn? Mm-hmm. Brooklyn in the house. <laughs> That's great. How is that like for you? I came to Brooklyn at 12. So I spent the first 12 years of my life in Port-au-Prince. Um, and coming to Brooklyn was a really big change, you know. I mean, a lot of uh, young people who are listening now might find this super hard to imagine, but there was no internet. There were no cell phones. There were really no computers as we know them. So I didn't really have a sense of what Brooklyn was like as uh, someone who's 12 now coming from any, most countries in the world will have some idea of what they're coming to. All I knew was that Brooklyn was this cold place where it snowed sometimes where my parents lived because I was living with my aunt and uncle in Haiti while my parents were working in New York. So it was a really, really big change. Um, first of all, the weather, the climate, but I had been apart from my parents for about eight years and I had two siblings that I'd only met once when my parents came to Haiti. So it was an adjustment to the city, to a new way of life, to a new country, but also to really what was essentially a new family. Of course, I mean, you grew up um, basically without your parents if I can mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being with them for the first time could definitely be difficult for a 12 year old, especially new environment, new people, new things to learn. At the time when you were moving the transfer, did you write any literature to kind of pass the time? Well, um, I did some not really literature, but I, I did these comic books with my brother and my cousin because the house I grew up in, there were a lot of young people like me whose parents were living abroad. So I had a cousin, my cousin and my brother. There was the three of us who kind of were a unit. We're like the three musketeers. And they loved to read um, what I guess you would call graphic novels now, but they were basically just like comic books. But about what like that were westerns and they were like cowboy movies you know with all their problematic <laughs> um, elements and so but they love to read those I love to read them and we read those together and then 
at the end, we would, you know, try to make one of our own. So my first writings were that, like these pieces of paper that I folded together and made into sort of tiny notebooks with my brother and cousin. Uh, and when I got here, though, in the U.S., I started writing um, more. I had, you know, I had a diary and then I started writing for a publication called New Youth Connections uh, in New York. So you growing up reading Western comics, did that change or did that give you some sort of an aspect of what America would be like? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Other questions are, are really wonderful. Um, yeah. Well, the strange thing was that here I was reading these Westerns. And then when I came here, the president of the country, we also watched cowboy movies. It was kind of like a thorough obsession. <laughs> and then when we got here, the president of the country was a cowboy, was Ronald Reagan, who, yeah. was, who was in all these movies um, that were Westerns. So it was really um, meta. Yeah. But you, you're so absolutely right in the sense that I think for at that time, especially for a lot of people, the image of the United States was like Daniel Boone, you know, which is like the, the frontier guy. We used to watch his show, uh, dubbed, of course, and then Little House on the Prairie. So it was this extreme between sort of the cop shows, which made you scared, and then these Westerns, which were from a whole other era. But the fact that the president was now like a cowboy person was, I did think that was strange when I, when I got to the U.S. Um, so growing up reading a lot of Western and watching a lot of Western media really quite did give you some sort of a view of what it was going to be like, but in a very unrealistic matter. Yeah. And it's I and I love the way you're using Western in this kind of double way. I don't think that I had that much access to Western media, but what I did see was geared towards entertainment. And then, and of course, in entertainment, there's a kind of exaggeration. So I didn't I didn't expect to land in New York and see like Laura or to see like but my uncle did tell me something like you know he said when you go to New York like don't do drugs right and that's what everybody it's like don't do drugs of course and then I remember when I got to New York every other corner was like a drug store which is a pharmacy but then I was like wow no wonder he told me that because there's a lot of temptation here to do drugs because there's so many drug stores yeah <laughs> How was your relationship with your uncle since he had a lot of connection here in America? Well, my uncle was like my, you know, I always think of myself as having had two dads, you know, my, my father who left Haiti when I was two and then my mom when I was four, but I didn't really have that many memories of my father. And when I was seven, he visited with my siblings and my mother. And that was a very short visit about a week or two. And then I saw my father again when I was 12. So my uncle raised me. And, and then at some point when I was growing up, he and Haiti with him, he got throat cancer and had to travel to the U.S. for medical care, but went back. And then he started speaking. They took out his larynx so he would speak with a, what was a voice box. So he would take me with him like to the bank. 
to run errands. And so I was very, very close to him. So it was hard to, to leave at, you know, at age 12 when I had to join my real family, but he would come back and forth and I would see him when he came. And it was interesting because when he got here, now I was going to the doctor with him here and, and interpreting for him for both the voice box and also the language. You know, he was also a minister and someone who was preaching. And when he lost his voice, it was such a big loss to him. And I think when you're young, you think you're of adults as untouchable, like as that they, nothing can really happen to them or that they'll have the answer to everything. And to see him go through that, I think for me was a, a very important lesson about human vulnerability, about different things that can happen to, to people of all ages, really. Did that realization touch you in a way to start writing the way that you write currently? I think, you know, that realization tied into the fact that I had to leave my, what I considered my home rather suddenly, because all of a sudden there's like, after waiting, 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 and then my papers came with my brother and then we had to go really quickly. So I think those two things made me realize very early on like the need to document things. That's why I think when I got here, I started keeping a diary because I realized that the things can happen so quickly. You can forget, you can miss things. And to this day, I'm like sort of like an obsessive documenting person, you know? And part of that, of course, this desire to document things led into writing, which also led into me wanting to contribute to my high school literary magazine to the New Youth Connections, where I wrote my first article, which led to essentially to my first book, Breath Ice Memory. Do you like documenting in different ways that isn't just writing? Yes. So I, in my journals, they're very, like, I'll show you, it just happens I have it because I, so my journals tend to be pretty visual. So this, um, I have this one notebook with like a picture of a Jean-Michel Basquiat painting, another one in the back. And then, so I keep like, these are my, I keep notes. And then if I, you know, I also have like visuals, you know, like if I see a person, I think, oh, this would be a great character. You know, I want it's like someone who looks like that in a story. So I'll paste that inside my notebook. When I teach, I'll tell my students, you can do that with your phone because I know that not everybody wants to do paper, right? So, and I'm sometimes, I have two daughters, one is 16, one is 13. And for example, during the pandemic, I told them, I said, you have to keep journals and because you want to remember this. And they're like, oh, everything is going to be on Instagram. That's going to be the archive. Like that's, <laughs> like that was their, yeah. their, their perspective. So then I said, so, so because of them, you know, with that sort of reliance on, digital media. So sometimes I'm driving with them and we'll see a cloud that looks like a baby for like one second. And so we're like, we document that with the phone or if you have notes, because the phone is the one thing everybody has all the time. So if you're not a journaling type of person, I, I document things with my phone too. So I think that's another sort of realistic way. If you're a visual artist, if you're a writer, that, that could be one way to capture something that, that might evoke something bigger later on. And then sometimes people think a diary, like a journal is a diary, like you have to write dear diary every single day. 
for me, it's some, it's just like a place to sometimes you scribble one note, sometimes you scribble a line. And, and for some people, that's just easier to do on their phone. Yeah, I feel like when you're using your phone as a way to document like pictures and videos and clips, and you could do all of that because it's very, you know, it's very there. You could use it anytime that you feel like you want to record something or remember a moment. But the novelty of writing in a journal, I feel like is uncomparable to taking a picture, even though photographs are still very very useful and very visual, but I feel like definitely, like you said, journaling is still very important. Oh yeah. I I absolutely agree. I love going back to my journals and like a year or two years and seeing kind of like, what was I thinking? Because I feel like, you know, it's, we're renewing ourselves every day. We're like a different, especially like this past couple of years where we've all been going through this pandemic and all of us have grown in ways that we are gradually realizing. So that's why I was telling my girls also to keep that journal. I said, when you're that grandma who's endlessly washing your hand, you might want (laughs) to have something to show why you were, why you're this person. Especially now, since I'm young, it's kind of just like a fear of not remembering what happened. And so it kind of lets the soul rest and being like, oh, this used to be me. And I've grown so much from that, that I can be proud of, I guess, where I am now. Letting your soul rest. Yeah, that would be a great title. (laughs) So most of your literature and your books are about diaspora. Explain that to me. How does diaspora connect with you? So being in diaspora means you're outside of your original homeland. I'm a member of, I guess, double diasporas. So the larger diaspora that I'm part of is the African diaspora and that you know, our ancestors came from the continent of Africa to different parts of this, of the world, you know, Brazil, the Carib- Latin America, the Caribbean. And then that diaspora, the African diaspora was split along, you know, languages. And also because different groups were taken from Africa to different places. So you'll have, you know, people in the African diaspora, black people in Brazil who speak Portuguese, you have people in the French-speaking diaspora who speak French or Creole and people in the English-speaking in Jamaica and the, you know, who speak English. And then the Haitian diaspora, which is a more recent diaspora led by immigration, which actually started in the United States very early uh, because Haiti won its independence from France in 1804. And after that, Haitians have always then we're able to travel to different places, join different uh, causes, because the leaders of Haiti at that time really wanted other places where people were enslaved to be free. And everybody who was enslaved, who came to Haiti, became free instantly, was granted sanctuary. Because of my you know, immigration and migration, most immigrant communities have a diaspora, and that diaspora is very important in the sense that a lot of people in the country of origin count on the money sent back. So I end up, you know, the money I send back 
for schooling, for different things to my family is called the remittance. And for Haiti, it's something like over a billion dollars that just people send to their family members, which then becomes a huge part of the economy of the country. So, so diasporas are um, important in the sense that they're people who leave the country, but and support it from outside. And for a lot of people, you know, it becomes like when you go back, you're sort of, you belong, but you don't belong, then they'll call you in Haiti, they'll call you diaspora, which is the Creole word for diaspora. Wow. So do you feel like you grew up more in like of an environment of a Haitian environment, or did you grow up more of like in an Americanized environment since you came here at kind of like a middle age of development? It was more of a Haitian environment because my parents lived in a building that was owned by their church. Uh, My dad was a deacon in the church and the minister was Haitian. And so most of the people who lived in the building were Haitian or of Haitian descent. And then the community around the neighborhood, uh, East Flatbush, was very Caribbean. At school was more of a mix of African-American, Puerto Rican, Haitian, Jamaican, English-speaking, Bahamian, English-speaking, Caribbean. But like day-to-day life for us was very Haitian. And it's like on Sundays, we, we would take turns going to different people's homes for you know, friends of my parents for Sunday dinner. The community that I came into was very, very Haitian. So you, you grew up in an environment where you felt really comfortable and didn't feel much out of place? I felt out of place out of my cocoon. Right. Because when I came in the 1980s, it was this time where people were just starting to talk about HIV and AIDS. And when they talked about that, they would say these are the groups of people who are at high risk or who have HIV and AIDS. And it was homosexuals, hemophiliac, herring addicts and Haitians. And Haitians were the only people who were identified by nationality. So when I was in school, the kids would call us, you know, they would say we had bad blood. They would call us names. They would hit us because it was kind of like if you think of for your generation, if you think of the early days of COVID where people didn't really know. And then they thought that you could walk out in the air. Like if you went for a walk, you could get it. I mean, it was, you know, people didn't know. So, for example, my at that time, the Haitian kids at my Middle school, the junior high school, weren't allowed to go on a school trip that they were having because they they didn't know how you get it. So I didn't feel super welcomed initially. (laughs) So I think our parents did a lot to try to give us other like nurturing structures through church, through these gatherings, so that almost as if to like fuel us up with love to go face all that hate in school. But it's not like now where now you can't really, it's like whatever hate at school comes home with you, sadly. You know, like I said, again, I have teenagers, I know. Back in the day, you could just endure. Like if you made it home, you ran from the people chasing you, you made it home, you were okay. And then the next day you faced it, but at least you had a, a break from it. Since you grew up in a religious environment, how did 
you feel about homosexuals at that time or how were they how are they presented to you since you were classified with them homophobia was not even a thing in my in my family i mean it was never brought up in in that sense and what you would see in the media was also how badly people who were you know in the age of aids how badly people were treated if they had aids whether they were haitians homosexuals but homosexuals took the brunt of it because people then started using that to mistreat them people only started showing sympathy for aids when they were very cute little like children who got it through blood transfusion so we had actually protests against the fda to about the ban for for people who are haitian so people were just very vocal about find us the solution to a very serious problem as opposed to stigmatize the individual groups whether they were homosexuals whether they were haitians whether they were hemophiliacs i i think at some point we even like in my house we started saying we're all people living with aids during that time um you said you were protesting for aids did you ever get racially attacked as well um no because i i lived i lived in a you know like i said a very predominantly caribbean and black community and it's not that that there wasn't racism you know the fact that <laughs> we dealt a lot with i mean one of the reasons that i think haitians were mistreated when you know in regard to hiv was racism and then that carried over to immigration because at the same time patients were also being kept at guantanamo before it was a big you know before it was what it is now which is sort of a, a detention center for people they accuse of terrorism so that was tried on people who were haitian so you know i wasn't called bad names but that was happening to the group that i belonged to so through all of the um experiences that you've been through and all of the i guess you could call it injustices how did that get you to the point that you are today how did that affect your writing well i think it goes back to what we mentioned about documenting so the first thing that i ended up writing for this newspaper that i joined when i was 14 called new youth connections was about my first day in the united states was about arriving in the united states and and part of it was driven by the whole like the teasing of kids who were saying you know they would say things like you have asian body odor that we are that you know the whole thing with the bad blood and and so forth so for me like i i wanted at that point to write I guess what we would call now a counter narrative <laughs> to try to just like to have another thing on record about who I am or who we are right and so that really was how it started and a lot of the other I realized a lot of the other writers for that magazine for that new youth connection at the time you know they weren't ex- had the same experiences but they had a similar goals so many of them were in foster care and they wanted to write about what it was like in foster care and they wanted to share what that was like because there were also misconceptions about kids who were in foster care and then from writing 
that first articles, those first articles, I realized, oh, I w- maybe I'll, I want to write a novel. Like I want to write longer stories. Like I want to find a girl my age, not my whole life, but put that through and then see that story to the other side. So I think um, bad experiences are often at the core of fiction, but uh, a literature. And the benefit of that is that at the end of the book, there's a resolution. It's not always happy. Sometimes it is. So I think that's also something like, for, I found that even now that I find that when I'm going through something difficult, it helps me to kind of see an idea through, see a story through, go from beginning to end. That's one of the things that's brought me from that, so that that girl to the person writing today. You know, Toni Morrison has this quote that says, if there's a story you want to read, you write it. Writing for me is a way of better understanding my my own experience. So writing is also healing. I mean, and I think that's why I recommend the journal. I think it's therapeutic. It's very healing. Totally. So how do you feel about how the past two years have been when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement and how that that's affected your writing or has affected your view since you went through such injustices that really had to do with nationality and had to do with almost race? Do you feel like there's been some sort of evolvement? Do you feel like there's been some sort of new point of view? How does that make you feel? Well, I, mean, I think the, the past two years have or should have led to so much evolution for a lot of people, right? The, there's the COVID pandemic. It's reminded me a lot of how fragile life is. Um, and the second thing, you know, to have also seen the social justice protests that same summer with the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. And part of the, the reason, I think one of the reasons that people were able to react so strongly was also because they were st- in the middle of this other pandemic. So it was like it was like two pandemics happening at the same time. And one of the pandemics was a pandemic of racism. <laughs> one of the first protests I went through was Yusuf Haw- Yusuf Hawkins, who was a, a someone who was the same age as me, who had gone somewhere to buy a car and was killed because he was black. So it's been an ongoing process. It's been wonderful to see or sort of the overlapping the intersectionalities because when I was younger, so an immigrant parent might say, just stay chill. This is not your problem. And then, but this past summer, you would see so many young people from so many different cultures with their flags from their home countries, you know, marching for social justice. But someone has had said it. And I think maybe that's why now maybe, you know, that it's, there's such effort being put in that, letting you know people and kids in school read certain books because in part the reason that you might have had so many people in the streets doing the, the protests who were not directly affected was because I, I believe it's the power of art. I believe they might have read Toni Morrison. They might have read Tanahasi Coates. Now they don't want you to read them anymore because they see that that's, there's the power of that. There's the power of art there's the, to humanize to to make us to bring things closer to us that seem far away and i think that there's was this whole generation that had been exposed to that yeah um we were talking about 
this generation and you have kids right mm -hmm. and you're an author and you're kind of a person who's really into i guess you could say artistic expression how do you feel that this generation and all the young people that have done that have tried so hard to do something and to bring things to light how do you think the evolution of their art and their expression and the outlets that they have how do you feel about it young people you know young people like you give me so much hope and you know again i have teenagers and I see what affects them. You know, the negative side of the internet is what I mentioned is that you never come home from school really. And you're never completely separated from ways for people to reach you. And if they want to hurt you, the positive side is that, you know, sometimes, you know, my 13 year old's teacher, like English teacher was saying, oh, you know, Leila wrote this wonderful essay on the prison industrial complex. And I talked to my my children about a lot of things, but we had not gone very deeply into the prison industrial complex. And then I asked her, I said, well, how did you know what you wrote in this paper? She said, oh, there was a TikToker who talked about it. And then I listened to this podcast she recommended. There's so many more tools at your, at your disposal. And we saw the manifestation of that in the, you know, I live in Florida. So the Parkland that shooting was not too far from where I live. And those young people, they were so ready in the sense, sadly, because this had happened before, but they were, they were so versed in not just expressing their pain or their dismay, they were ready to act. And they had the vocabulary, they had the tools to welcome us into it so that I went with my with my family to the March for Our Lives rallies. And then they were, did this extra thing, which I thought was powerful because they were from a certain privilege area. And then they, they were including in their speaking out against gun violence, young people in disadvantaged areas who live with gun violence in a different way. And then they sort of folded in them into that movement too. So I am very hopeful about young people from Greta Thunberg to the Parkland students to Amanda Gordon. <laughs> to, um, there's some really wonderful examples out there and you all have these tools, like you understand this communication better than we do. And thankfully there are also these other people out there who want to, who have millions of followers and want to use that for good. So I'm super hopeful for the youth because the, the, we made a mess of it all and we're leaving you a, a really difficult situation, but you have tools. We, you know, the rest of us, I'm 53, like that we didn't have. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And today I think Allison really demonstrated how remarkable and thoughtful our young people are. This was wonderful, and, she, and, and Allison was amazing. She really was. And I hate to take the conversation out of her capable hands, but I do have one last question that we ask all of our guests. If you could go back in time and give advice to yourself when you were Allison's age, what would that advice be? Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I would say it's going to get better. <laughs> Hang in there. It'll get better. I think when you're 13, especially 13 today, when everything is so immediate, so urgent, everything moves so fast, there's a kind of desperation about everything. 
what seems momentous right now, what seems, you know, insurmountable, that what seems just unbelievably difficult will one day hopefully seem like a blip in your journey. And also the fact that we learn from everything. We grow, we grow sometimes from the most difficult situations. We grow from failure. We grow from rejection. And I would also say, because something I say to my girls is don't be afraid to be by yourself. It's okay. You're, you know, as Toni Morrison said, you're enough. I mean, I think one of the great uh, skills that we, that young people have lost is the ability to be alone because there will be times when you will be all you've got. I think it's important to, to enjoy being with yourself. On that note, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Your work has been deeply meaningful to me and to many of my colleagues at New York Edge. Just thank you for taking the time. And Allison, thanks for sharing your talent with us. It was really nice to meet you, actually. I really enjoyed it. It was nice chatting with you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Formative. I'm your host, Rachel Gazdick, CEO of New York Edge. My co-host today was Allison from IS51R Edwin Markham School in Staten Island. She was assisted by Michael Roche. Our guest today was best-selling novelist Edwige Dantica. The show is produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Post-production and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Production manager Gabriella Montekin and executive producer David Hoffman. Thanks to the whole team here at New York Edge for making this series possible. Never miss an episode of Formative by subscribing to the series at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.